0: I want to what I want to start with is um, this uh, this article uh opensource.com uh, that's talking about smart gimp tricks. I'm wondering if anyone in the mumble room or otherwise uh, has has uh, does a lot with GIMP. I know Rotten Corpse, you do a lot of uh, you do a lot of graphic design, but I'm not sure if you use GIMP or not. Maybe Rotten Corpse isn't here. Anyone use GIMP? I use it to crop pictures and um, I actually there's a uh, there's a a processing service that we print all of our uh, promotional material from all So we have, uh, you know, our cards and we have flyers and table tents and stuff like that. And, And a lot of that stuff gets sent out over GIMP. But uh, because Inkscape will export to to a PNG and then they want silly little compressed formats that, you know, that are far. So I I use it to to, uh, essentially to reprocess image files Um, and occasionally I'll crop a picture or, you know, or change something like that. But um, anyone use GIMP extensively?
1: I don't use it extensively, but I do see a great use for it as that kind of go to utility. You know, Mm -hmm. pretty much any any Linux install that you have, you have GIMP, you know, that you can use it for those base needs. Yeah. Also, sometimes it does the job very well. I've used it a lot to render PDFs before sending it to a printer. Kind of sure. Kind of like what you do.
0: Yeah. 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 For you know, and it, it, I did see actually it was it was interesting of all places. I was watching um, a true TV. I, West, you watch true TV. Do you ever watch like forensic files and, and the new detectives and stuff like that? I have not. But it I, sounds interesting. It, well, I tell you what, it's a double edged sword, because on one hand, I start to think I can get away with anything because I'm like, oh, you moron. How did you not know about DNA? And then on the other hand, uh, I realized that that's from like 10 years ago. And so, you know, 10 years ago, that whatever the technology is that we have today to catch people um, probably won't become very prevalent for another 10 years. And so, you know, I'm judging people based on their information 10 years ago. Um, But I was watching the other night and GIMP actually made an appearance and they were talking about how they were changing the contrast of of this photo to bring out certain elements in it. And, you know, the little announcer guy, he's got this, you know, deep voice and he's like, so the... Photo analysts use the GNU image manipulation program, which is a professional program released for free that has has amazing power. And and, and part of me was like, okay, so I actually don't know a lot of, you know, super photo professionals or image professionals that use GIMP. On the other hand, I'm really happy that there's a public perception, at least uh, in that particular TV show, that it's this very high powered tool and, and is available for free.
1: Right. Those shows get so much wrong. It's nice that uh, at least they're getting it wrong in our direction for once.
0: Well, yeah, it was kind of cool. But, uh, but so, so anyway, so I saw the GIMP and, and then then you posted the story and I'm like, maybe I'm a little out of touch. Maybe there are a ton of people that are using GIMP nowadays. And in the chat room, uh, you know, I should point out in the chat room, there's a ton of people that are using GIMP. Obviously, Odyssey Westrip. He actually, and, and, and Odyssey, you should, uh, you should maybe join us if you have the ability to jump and mumble. Um, but, uh, uh, Westra, he, he's a graphics designer. So he uses, does a lot of graphics design and he does all of it in open source. And we've actually had him do a couple of stuff from us, for us as a company, at, at all to speed, that is. And I've had him do some personal stuff for me. And I know that he uses, um, all open source, uh, software, GIMP and, and Inkscape and, um, uh, Krita. Uh, and and um and that that's actually how he does the majority of his workflow um so uh yeah but anyone use any other open source graphics utilities anyone ever used inkscape
2: i used inkscape oh uh, what do you use it for i used to use it not so much anymore but when i ran my business uh somebody needed uh something done like a brochure or something like that it was great for doing page layouts okay I actually preferred it over
3: Scribus.
0: no kidding I,
3: uh, I use inkscape um, one of the Ubuntu phone uh, community developers created a toolkit in Inkscape uh-huh. for doing user interface design mock-ups So it's got all of the all of the kind of elements that you would need to create um, you know an application whatever application you like um, as little elements in a giant Inkscape um document and you just drag the bits around duplicate them move them around line them all up and then you know design your application that way it's really really cool
0: i tell you what one of the things that i have come to love about inkscape itself is because it's a vector graph program you know i can i can start out with a you know 500 by 500 800 by 800 whatever it is a canvas and and design a graphic um you know uh you know uh, asset and then i can take that graphic asset and i can say all right well i need to blow that up to the size of a banner or a poster or we're going to wrap a car uh, or a via service vehicle and how are we going to do that well we can take that that vector graphic and it scales you know essentially indefinitely um and you can combine one uh, graphic art from the other so i'll give you an example we actually are launching a cloud-based Wi-Fi for uh, the hospitality industry. So essentially, they pay, a, pay us a monthly fee, and we bring in a bunch of equipment and set it up, and we manage all of that remotely. And one of the things is that there is a tent that goes inside of the room, and that tent has connection details and um, contact information. If if they have so if they have trouble with their Wi-Fi. They can call a one eight hundred number and somebody will walk them through how to restart their computer and turn on the nice. Wi Fi. All the stuff that I wouldn't want to do, right? And then right. if it, if, it, if it exceeds that level, then it gets elevated to us. And so we we got a a um, a free for use, uh, um, uh, essentially a Wi Fi. Uh, vector graphic and we were able to bring that into Inkscape and take our existing card that we already had designed and, and put, and then we had this wifi logo. And because it's, it's a vector graphic, all of the transparency carried over all of the, you know, I could change the color to match the color scheme that we had. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. And and the fact that I can do all that with open source software is incredible to me. I, you know, and it, 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 it changes the way that you can approach a project because I can essentially use the internet and people on the internet that are doing creative things and combine those all for for a single purpose and it's
1: awesome. It is. I, I've used it a little bit of work myself, uh, mostly for I'll have a automated tool that will output a graph, maybe of like data structure relations and how they're mm-hmm. all, you know foreign key kind of stuff. Uh, and Inkscape will just import the PDF and you can modify it before shipping it out or putting it on the wiki for documentation. That's awesome.
0: Yeah and and uh, you know we actually we uh I think the uh, I can't remember the program that we used for our original logo design the one that everyone comments on um but we, <laughs> <laughs> but we t- <laughs> but after that we took that imported it and and Inkscape actually has the ability to look at a graphic uh asset and trace it out and then fill it with a blank color and so we essentially stripped all of the um you know fancy filters and stuff off of it and turn it back into you know, a vector and then we were able to recolor it and build it back up from there. So that was, that was no pretty way. neat. Too. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Go open source. Yeah, it was awesome. This is Linux unplugged episode 128 for January 19th, 2016. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly talk show that's brought to you this week from the sprawling metropolis of the frozen tundra. My name is Noah. My name is Wes. Hey, Wes, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Well, once again, the the uh, the lovely world of the internet has connected us through IP packets. Isn't it wonderful? It is. And we, and we get to chat and talk about Linux, which is coincidentally my favorite thing to talk about. So, I want to start out by talking about why it is... Uh Wes and I are pretending to be Chris this week, and that's because Chris is on his way to scale. He is in JB Rover 2, which if you haven't seen, head over to twitter.com and check out at Chris LAS. It is it is crazy cool. He got a like an amazing RV. Wes, have you seen pictures of this thing? Yeah, it is a beast. It's incredible. It is incredible. It 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 is like a luxury home on wheels. And I, I like anyone who sees it is going to be jealous. They're going to I would live in a camper if that's what my camper looked like. That's how cool it is.
1: But like a roving JB
0: party bus. Exactly. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's really good. That's a better name than that's a better name than Rover too. the rover party bus. I have to pitch that to him. Anyway, he's on the road as we speak, making his way down to scale. And if you're not familiar with what scale is, it's a Southern California Linux Expo. And um Chris is going to be attending this year and hanging out uh and and covering some of the community aspects and and this that and the other and uh because of the way that uh the time it's going to take him to travel he's not available on tuesday and so he has let Wes and i sit in the big chair and do the show this week so we are going to talk this week starting uh with a reddit thread a follow up from the linux action show <clears throat> And basically, um, it, uh, Reg, Regia Regia, I don't exactly know how to pronounce that. Um, posted in the Linux Action uh, in the Linux Action Show subreddit, which is of course Reddit.com/slash r/slash Linux Action Show. And he says, "Noah hit on something <clears throat> about Unity," and he says, "I wish." I, I think he's quoting me. It says, "I wish Ubuntu would just use GNOME and go back to trying to contribute useful bits." And then he. Um, links to an imager image of uh, of, uh, apparently a Star Trek episode. Um, Now I have a few extensions. Oh, he's showing his desktop. Now I have a few extensions installed. But I, the way I use Gome, G- Gnome, it isn't much different than how somebody else would use Unity. I keep the dash on at all t- sides. I have those pesky tray apps in the corner and so on. This is close to how I work with Unity and OSX, etc. I'm puzzled to why Gnome gets treated like the red-headed stepchild sometimes. Now uh, now I know that once in a while, GNOME the Gnome dev team decides to head off the deep and Make the file manager work like an old school finder by default, but hey, let's override users pre-existing settings. That's that's not very good, is it? But overall, GNOME just keeps getting better and better. Now, Wes, you're the one that actually brought this to my attention. What what was your immediate thought when you read this and 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 was and you know if you when you watched the show and and thought about how all that ties together?
1: Well, you know, I I too am a GNOME user. Uh, I definitely prefer it. But I can understand why Canonical wants to be developing their own desktop environment, you know, with their plans for Convergence with uh, the big move to Unity 8. I think a lot will depend on what that looks like when it's shipped and when everyone's using it. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think people do, you know, like yourself, like many desktop users, a lot of people I know at work who sit next to me are using Unity. And uh, it seems to work for them. And I also think that while that GNOME is different... Uh, there does seem to be a significant portion of people who use GNOME not dissimilar to Unity. You know, with the, with the dock on the side, kind of, you know, you, you hit your super key and you're finding applications. It's, it's not that
0: different. So, I guess my, I, you know, I'm one of the few people that actually, and I, I responded to this in the Reddit too. I, I'm one of the few people that actually like Unity. Um, I actually have Unity on the laptop I'm using right now and I have it on the desktop that I'm using to send the stream to, to Chris. That becomes particularly evident when um you have multi monitors that exceed three if you have more than three monitors, I just think that unity it comes off more polished than gnome does oftentimes and and chris would would vehemently disagree with this he he would tell you that he would point out a thousand different things that 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 um that point to why gnome is a more polished desktop environment but I see things like, you know, the multi monitor support, the fact that I can choose a display and only that display has my, you know, launcher bar and activity stay. And I can put that on any of the displays. Doesn't necessarily have to be the quote unquote primary. Um, I can set up how I want. I can set up because oftentimes I'll, the quote unquote primary monitor is the one that's right in the center of me. And I have two auxiliary monitors off to the left and right, and then three auxiliary monitors up on top. And that's not a. That's not a usual use case, but it's my use case. And in in that instance, I, I think that Unity just shines a little bit. And the other thing is, too, is I feel like there are a lot of things that just feel that make Unity feel more cohesive than Gnome. And I'll give you an example. So on Gwake, for example, I get weird. I'm not sure it could be a bug, but I get a weird thing where when I bring down Gwake, it doesn't it. The transparency doesn't necessarily go over the. um this the the menu at the side do you use wake Wes?
1: you know i have in the past but uh i usually just have a terminal open kind of in the corner somewhere anyway so i I don't use it currently
0: yeah so i so I, i i like to have whatever i'm doing and this is the one thing i think that gnome got right is have everything in full screen and take up the whole screen and the exception to that is the terminal because oftentimes the terminal is my connection to another machine Exactly, and then my screen is whatever I'm doing to that machine. And so I bring the terminal down, I do some work, I put it back up, I you know reorganize, figure out what I'm going to do next, bring the terminal back down. And I feel like um, I I just I think that GNOME uh, it does not feel as native to me when I install an app and have you know that like that that menu that GWAKE, for example come down. It just doesn't feel as native to me as it does in in something like Unity. And I I see other little things that just feel like pieces that have been put together and on one hand i really appreciate that because that is essentially the heart of linux right everyone does something very very well and we bring all those pieces together and it makes for a cohesive experience um and for whatever reason i just I, there are there are there are a number of little things that just make me think that gnome is missing and so i'm actually one of the people that like unity that said there are so there are some there are some key issues that irritate the heck out of me. So I had a client that actually was using Ubuntu GNOME because that's the first thing everyone's going to say is I don't know why everyone's uh, I don't know why no hating on GNOME. It's available with Ubuntu. It's a, it's a it's a blessed uh you know um I forget the terminology not not a flavor but a um you know a, a, a flavor uh, uh the GNOME environment and. He installed Ubuntu GNOME, and what would happen was if he would full screen a Flash video in Firefox <clears throat> and then unfull screen it and then go back to re-full screen it, it wouldn't re- it wouldn't go back into full screen a second time. He'd have to restart his computer or at least log out to make that happen again. Now, some people are going to blame Firefox. Some people are going to blame GNOME. Some people are going to blame Ubuntu, but the problem didn't occur in Chrome inside of uh, Ubuntu GNOME, and the problem didn't occur in Firefox in Ubuntu Unity, and the problem didn't occur in any other distro. Uh, I can tell you've tried this. Yeah. Well, yeah, you we troubleshot the heck out of it. Let me tell you. Cause I, I, and so basically what I came to, I came to the conclusion that at least in, in, in some esoteric use cases, because canonical is focusing so much on their own desktop, everything works really, really well in unity. And so if you're going to use Ubuntu, you're probably your best choice is to go with, uh, is to go with unity because that's their quote unquote default desktop, and so what I think is is interesting is we have this illusion of choice that you can pick any desktop, but really you you start to you start to have compromises, and the further down the list you go the 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 less popular of a desktop you choose the more problems i find that exist and so um you know i i can't count the number of issues i've had with uh, cinnamon when i try to install it on ubuntu now on a like on mint it works just fine but you try and install the cinnamon desktop on top of ubuntu and i have all sorts of weird weird issues that i don't really want to work through and so so I, I, I and i don't know and so that that was kind of my response on reddit and i'm wondering what you think of that response <laughs>
1: I, th- I think that's fair. Uh, I would like to hear what our Mumble Room has to say. Let's uh,
0: introduce those fine fellows.
4: Hello. 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 Well,
0: oh, there's tons of people in here. So, Mumble Room, uh, you guys all use Linux, right?
4: Yes, sir. All right. Yep. Yep. What's that's
0: that? That's a question. Linux? GNU slash Linux? Yeah. GNU slash Linux. Um, so... Wimpy I'm I'm interested uh, to some degree to get your perception because Ubuntu Mate is is one of those uh is one of those distros where I I have not to the best of my knowledge found a single thing that when as when using Ubuntu Mate where it makes me feel like I'm on a, a on on an alternative desktop from uh, uh, from standard Ubuntu everything just wor- I mean literally everything just works. In fact, so much so that I actually all of the production machines that I have here in Grand Forks, um, with the exception of the one I'm on now, but all the rest of them are actually running Ubuntu Mate because it runs lighter than it does with Unity. And I'm wondering, you know, what kind of considerations went into that, and 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 how you guys feel about that, and um, and how that plays out.
5: Well, Ubuntu Mate is just Ubuntu. In fact, it is Ubuntu. Um, when you when 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 you boil it down, you simply—I say simply—it's taken a year and a half to do. You you remove Unity and you put the Mate Desktop on top, but then you keep all of the Ubuntu tools and integrations that already exist underneath the hood, which is what gives you all of that stability and just works goodness of ubuntu on a traditional desktop environment so and one of the reasons why mate is lighter than um, unity is that it's based on gnome 2 with all of the old compatibility stuff from gnome 1 removed and all of the underpinnings upgraded to the latest versions of all the recent technologies um and it's all written in C, so it's a very lightweight implementation. By you know, by comparison to what it was um, when it was GNOME 2 in its sort of last versions. So um, it's kind of happenstance in some respect that respects that Mate has now come out as a, a lightweight desktop alternative.
0: Outstanding. Um, anyone else have have uh, have thoughts or opinions on desktop environments and? Sure.
3: i I, sorry if my audio is terrible. I'm in America for scale. Um, uh, So there's a few things. One, whenever anyone says I'm one of the few people who like Unity, I want to slap them because there are millions of people who use Unity. Watch out at scale.
1: Watch out at scale, Noah. And,
3: and, you know, saying I'm one of the few people. What actually is the case is there are a few really negative uh, people who don't like it and who are very vocal and there's a vast number of people who use it and aren't vocal. So, you know, saying you're one of the few people, you should actually say, I'm one of the majority who like Unity, to be fair. Um, so the uh, the original question, you know, from the guy posted on Reddit was about, you know, why don't we just use GNOME? You could use that same argument about every single desktop. Why don't you all just all pack up and go home and use something else, is effectively what you're saying. And every single desktop has their own um, niche that they want to fulfill or use cases that they um, address that others don't like, you know, for example, elementary have their um, uh, niche with, it's not so much a you know, niche. I would like to have a, you know, well-designed, pretty robust, you know, functional desktop. Uh, that sounds like a reasonable thing. And, and so, you know, that I think it's unreasonable to suggest that that people who are working on those things should throw that away and use something else instead. Um, You might just as well say, why don't KDE give up and switch to no? It's a a nonsensical argument from my point of view. That's fair. Um so uh,
0: basically and I admit that this is a horrible horrible thing to uh, to base a generalization on but there was, <laughs> I am admitting that up front but there is there it was a couple months ago maybe even a year ago that we did a poll um a straw poll and to find out what desktop environment people were using and I was shocked at how many people didn't vote for Unity and 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 Gnome shot way at to the top and and Unity was down there and I guess I've had that correct or uh, incorrect or correct. Um, perception that uh, that unity just wasn't preferred by a lot of the people that the uh, you know that that are aware of other desktop environments that are out there. And I, well, I fully admit that you uh, that you know work you know working in the space that you work in, you're going to have a much 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 more realistic perception, you know, of
3: what actually biased. <laughs> well, completely biased, or and you should throw away my opinion completely, and you should only listen to people who are outside of this bubble. Um, because they were, their opinion won't be tarnished, uh, you know. Potentially, is one side of it, but the flip side is, any of these um, polls are deeply flawed. The same way that be- bearing uh, using DistroWatch as your measure, exactly of the same. Distro is it's ridiculous, and people who who place any importance on something which is basically um, a poll, which can be shared amongst a, re- a subreddit which massively skews the numbers for any one distro, plus or minus, when in fact the actual people who use and like a particular desktop or user interface or application or whatever are ultimately never going to see that poll. My mum uses Ubuntu and has used Ubuntu for years. She will never see that poll and never click on anything in that poll. Saying, well, That's exactly the point many, I, was, I was thinking. is that However many millions of people in China use the uh, Ubuntu desktop, they're, they're never going to see this because the things written in English, for one. So it's just ludicrous. We
1: in particular also are a, pe- a community of, you know, Linux enthusiasts and people who like customization. I think some of Unity's strengths is that it can be widely deployed and people, it's pretty easy for people to just get it. You know, the icons are right there on the left. You hit the super key, things just work. So it has a lot going for it, like like you said, you know, your mom can use it. My mom uses it; it's it's great. Well,
0: and we also have Unity is actually the default desktop on well, not the default desktop; it's the only desktop uh, on the on all of our kiosk machines that we deploy. And so, basically, if you think about the target audience, there, it's we're taking people from all walks of tech of, of the technical spectrum and saying that no matter who walks in, if they sit down and they want to check their email, print a boarding pass, or check the weather. They're going to be able to accomplish those things quickly, easily, and without complaining to the front desk because, of course, if they complain, then we lose the contract. And what we found is that little bar on the side of Unity, which, by the way, requires no tweaking and requires no extensions, which means we don't have to update anything, It becomes... Is is incredibly useful in a situation like that, and so I agree that the average person walking around the street is going to sit down and have no trouble using Unity. And I think I even started out by saying I phrased it you know poorly, but the the gist of the message was it's my personal belief that that Unity is a more polished desktop than GNOME is. Um, but uh, but for whatever reason, and maybe it is just that people are are terribly vocal. I guess there is a, there is there is a perception from. From some people, that uh, there's a perception from some people that that the that the Unity desktop is inferior, correct or incorrect?
3: Well, that's different. It's like uh, any any individual, like any Reddit consumer, uh, is entitled to have their opinion, and it's perfectly fine for someone to say Unity is inferior because of these X Y Z reasons. Mm-hmm. In the same way that someone might not like. Um, enlightenment, or someone might not like KDE because it doesn't work their workflow, or the apps don't look right, or you know, for whatever reason, it's perfectly fine for people to have their opinions, you know, and like buttholes, everyone's got one. <laughs> the, the problem is when you try and extrapolate from a poll on a random website somewhere and make bold assertive statements about whether something is right or wrong or whether something is good or bad based on a button clicked by a bunch of random people on the Internet. It makes no sense whatsoever to me. But that's just
0: me. No, I think that's completely fair. Um, all right. Well, I want to talk about a piece of feedback that we got in. And this comes to us from DuCake and DuCake writes in and he says, greetings. I was hoping that maybe some of the technical savvy people might be able to help point me in the right direction to resolve my crisis. I may have just made a potentially costly mistake. We nuked and paved a friend's brand new Lenovo Yoga 500 with Linux without booting into Windows to first disable Secure Boot explicitly. He didn't want to accept the EULA, and so we successfully booted into the USB key. Ubuntu Mate 15.10, Ubuntu with Unity 15.04, so we thought we would just go ahead. We installed both Ubuntu Mate 15.10 and then installed Ubuntu with Unity 14.04. After booting, we were faced with a very plain and daunting boot prompt, and he gives a screenshot. I get a screen with boot options of which the hard drive, if I select any of these, it just repomps me to the same screen. I imagine that I need to go into the system that has a secure boot signature, that is, find such a distro, install it, disable secure boot, then reinstall our preferred system. I thought Ubuntu would be a candidate, but apparently not. Is this the correct way? Which distros would work? We have tried installing into Ubuntu Unity 1504 which is supposed to have the appropriate signature, but after install and reboot, we get the above. Given that Windows has been obliterated at this point, what options do I have? Unfortunately, he's leaving in just over a week, so if the conclusion ends up being install Windows to do this, I'll take it, but I'd rather not. If anyone has any tips, thanks, do cake. So, I hate, and I use that word strongly, I hate Windows and Secure Boot. It has become a nightmare to get Linux onto machines sometimes, and I had a guy that we actually ended up returning his computer back to Best Buy, and he bought a different model because we simply. And I fully admit, I'll put this disclaimer out: it's probably because I'm an idiot. I fully admit that there's probably some of you out there that know exactly what buttons to click and exactly how to get it to install, but I couldn't. I couldn't get it to work, and it uh, it it drove me nuts. And so I'm curious: is there anyone there? Is there anyone out there that knows how to do this? Because the only way I'm aware of is to actually boot into Windows, go into the troubleshooting menu, reboot into the the UEFI settings, and then disable uh, secure boot or turn on um, legacy boot or or whatever they call it is different in in different manufacturers. But um, does anyone know of another way to do that?
1: I, I might have an idea. Um, if it's a, a Lenovo, then there might be like a little button on the side of the, of the PC. You press that button, yep. and it'll ask you if you want to uh, your boot options. Go into the BIOS, and that's where the secure boot should be located. And just check, turn it off from there.
6: Yeah, yeah, we did. That's what I. That's what I did in my laptop. I
1: I got a Lenovo Y five ten P laptop. That well, the motherboard fried, but anyway, it came with Windows eight. With secure boot, UEFI, and all that stuff, so I just pressed that button, went into the BIOS, shut all that off, and Linux installed just great.
0: Yeah, and we did the same thing on on Angela's Yoga too. Uh, yoga Two. we Angela's Yoga Two as well. <laughs> we'll say it that way. Um, but she had that little button, and yeah, that was super slick to get into the boot menu. But the thing that was confusing to me is they're able to get into somewhat a. Uh, of a UEFI setting or BIOS setting because they're able to change the boot order. So I would think that there'd be something inside of those UEFI settings to to, to turn it off. Um, it does kind of look like the, the
1: one thing they might want to check as well, just in general, if they want to use Ubuntu. Uh, you know, if they got it installed, obviously secure boot is working to the point where they could boot into it. Uh, And it kind of just looks like the EFI entry didn't get set. There should be like a, you know, Linux manager, the same way there's a Windows manager. Exactly. So I can actually
6: answer that for you. Yeah, please. Okay. So depending on what model of computer it is, like, or sorry, not model, what make it is, like HP, Lenovo, uh, et cetera, there's a different key when you're booting up and you get their splash screen that you got to hit. Uh, to get into the UEFI, and then usually there's a setting in there to disable secure boot, or in some cases you can even go as far as to go into legacy BIOS mode, and then uh, that bypasses all the UEFI nonsense.
0: Ah, okay, and the and, uh, chat so, room is telling us that on Lenovo F1 will get us in to make that change?
6: Yeah, and on Toshiba, uh, it's usually delete uh, F10 on HP... And uh, I can't remember what it is for Asus.
0: All right. Well, that's that gives him something to try anyway. But, uh, you know, I'll reiterate again, I think it's been a real pain. I, I've tried a couple different times to uh, – you know, it's gotten to the point where I'm almost more likely now to buy a used machine that previously had Windows 7 on it and just uh, and wipe that off rather than um, – You know, rather than go with a new machine because it's just such a pain. And that's sad, really, because it it's seriously going to decrease the amount of people that are willing to give Linux a shot. I am nervous as heck now to recommend that somebody try to install Linux, whereas before I'd be like, well, let's try and dual boot it. Worst case scenario, we just uninstall it and redo your partition. Now I'm petrified to do even that.
1: I was just helping my brother with his new laptop, and uh, you know, I, had, I walked him through over the phone how to disable a secure boot. And even he's fairly technical, but he even asked me like, "Oh, is it is it okay that we have this off?" You know, just the name scares people to even try to follow that kind of instruction. You
0: know, that's such a good point. And they have these stupid, idiotic messages that pop up too that say things like, "You're disabling secure boot. Your computer may be you may be susceptible to unsigned firmware and cause damage." And no, no, it won't because we've used computers with unse- with with unsecured BIOSes. I hate using that word um for the last 20 years and we've never had a problem so or I should and in this no. case
1: it does also seem like the at the same time they rolled out that quick boot where it doesn't always load the keyboard and other drivers right at the exactly. start. Exactly, like that plays right into it. You know, on Jeez, its own, Secure Boot's okay especially for enterprises and places where you do want that extra, you know, key security to only boot your kernel, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work as well in this case.
0: You know, I've worked in a decent amount of enterprises. I mean, they're going to be somewhat limited in Grand Forks, North Dakota. I've never walked into an enterprise that was concerned about uh, which kernel was booting. It just it just seems like a problem that never existed. And and the, the thing is like you're, you're onto something with that. Um, it doesn't recognize keyboard input just to load into the BIOS of the UFI menu. You can't even do that anymore, you know, because it, it boots so fast with that stupid, uh, you know, fast boot or whatever, where it doesn't completely shut down. Just a pain. Um, Lucas Z writes in and he says, I heard yesterday about FriendOS. FriendOS. It looks like this. And he links us a YouTube video. Uh, so it's an Amiga workbench in the browser powered by Linux back. And they're releasing the public beta as open source this week it will be able to run on both html5 and native applications and then he links us to their website i'm wondering if anyone in the chat or in the uh, mumble room has heard about this or played with it nobody nobody has played with friend os well let's let's take a look um so it looks actually pretty neat anytime you start combining an operating system and a uh, and a browser I I get excited. Wes, have you seen this? I think you were the one that linked it, actually. Only just a little bit. What do you think? It it was kind of interesting.
1: Honestly, I wish they had a few more screenshots. The video's okay, but more screenshots, a yeah. little bit more, it, it's kind of mm, a little salesy at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It really is. A lot of, a lot of, a uh, lot of stock, uh, stock photos and stuff like that. Well, anyway, um, look at the, that 3d earth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, nonetheless, uh, I, it still excites me and the, and it would be something that might be neat to get a review on a little bit later, but, um, basically my understanding is, um, that, that, uh, that you like again, you, as this is email said, so you get an Amiga workbench inside the browser. And, um, have you used anything similar to this before?
1: No, I don't think I have. Hmm.
0: Anyone in the mumble room used anything similar to this or have an idea what we could expect if, if, you know, when they, when they release their public beta and we play with it? Nobody? Nobody. It's quiet in here. This isn't popular. Um, well. Um, hmm, that's no good so uh I guess what we'll do is we'll just we'll keep our eye on it and um when they release the public beta and we get to play with it we will uh we'll take a look at it and see what we think and maybe by that time, I guess once i guess that that is what the uh um what the catalyst of conversation is right is actually getting to play with something if you can't really see what it is, I suppose. Um yes they had other
1: two in an article but it's not in English so I could not read it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I tried you know I tried to use it. that's another thing too is Google Translate has been has been super crazy. Well, I'll tell you what uh, what else is crazy is uh, Chris is on his way to uh, scale. Now, I don't know how many people I haven't I haven't heard what the final numbers of people that bought the um the 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 shirt to support the trip from scale but at this point whether you support it or not you can come visit Chris, hang out with him. He's going to be at scale. I believe he's arriving tomorrow night. And you can track him the entire way there, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover-2. And he has, um, oh, he updated it. Oh, that's cool. Um, You can live track him to find out exactly where he is, and you can go beat on his door and and, and say hello. And people did that last time, and he actually invited him right onto the air. So I don't know if you remember that, Wes. We are sitting here, we're doing the show, and all of a sudden, we have a third person there uh, that was joining us. Um, from it was awesome. The J- yeah, it was. It was really cool. We got to talk to him, and and they got to be on the air, and and essentially do the show. And and the chat room is officially renaming, uh, unofficially renaming uh, Chris's RV as the JB Party Bus. I don't know if that's actually going to go over well or not, or if he's going to keep it Rover 2, But I'm in favor of the JB PB. That's I'm down with it. Chris, yeah, you have to say yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll talk to him. But you can follow him. On, uh, on jupiterbroadcasting.com. So I think both, do both the links, both Rover and Rover 2 work? I think they do. I'm going to jbrover slash rover and that seems to still work. So I think that's working. You know, I actually attend all of the major conferences and I've tried every cell phone vendor out there practically. I've, I've had a Verizon phone, I've had an AT&T phone and I can tell you without a doubt, the most reliable connection that you're going to get at a conference like Scale that's full of congestion is from Ting. Now, Ting is a trendsetter of the of the of the mobile sphere. If you go into any cell phone shop uh, today, you'll see that they have all of these uh, gimmicks for no contract phones, and and uh, and AT and T has done away with their two year contract, and and they have all this prepaid stuff. And you know who started all of that? Ting did. Uh, with Ting, you're only going to pay for what you use. So we have contract employees that come in here for a week at a time, or two weeks for a time, or a month at a time, and we have them do things like wiring buildings and pulling Cat Five, and 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 doing punch down block tests. And uh, if we're doing a if we're doing an equipment swap for. You know, a hotel, they have a bunch of new machines. They don't have to have any real technical skills. They just have to be able to unbox computers, put them in the place of the old ones, and then our techs will go through and actually do the imaging and configure that kind of stuff. So they have to do very basic things. But we need to be able to get a hold of those guys. And the way that we do that is we outfit them with a phone from Ting. Now, because they're working on-site in a place that we manage the Wi-Fi, they're on Wi-Fi 100% of the time. Very nice. We use Telegram for all of our texts, and we use SIP for all of our phone calls. So, Wes, the deal is they're not really using any of Ting's service. We need that we need it to fall back to a phone service. We need it to fall back to internet in case they're not available or they they you know they go off site for a little bit. But for the they're most part, are picking up supplies at the store? They have a question to ask. You got it. You know they've got service. You've got it. But for the most part, we're only paying 6 bucks a month for those phones. Now uh, now, that alone would be enough for you to get your drop your current provider and come over to Ting. But because you're a Linux unplugged audience, they're going to give you $25 off your first device, your first, mo- first month of service. And all you have to do to get that is visit, and I think we can all agree here, this is the coolest URL on the web, linux.ting.com. Linux.ting.com, and you can buy something for yourself. For me, I actually bought uh, a, a, a unlocked GSM phone off of eBay. And was able to use that $25 towards my first month of service. And if you're only using 6 to $10, you're going to get the first month or two for free. It's not going to cost you anything. They're going to give you that. So linux.ting.com and pick yourself out something nice. And thank you so much to Ting for sponsoring the, uh, the uh, Linux Unplugged. So let's see if this is more popular. It better be. I have had servers on My brain this week and uh, for a number of different reasons. And so I I immediately gravitated towards this article um, that says the if it loads. There we go. um, Ocean, the Linux web server that fits in your pocket. Ocean may look like a smartphone, but in fact, it's a fully functional Linux powered web server that fits in your pocket. You want a web, you want a portable Linux powered web server. Look no further than ocean. Ocean has been designed for the ground up for profit for, for portability and features integrated battery that allows you to run web and Bluetooth applications in place where direct power is limited. The device is approximately the size of an iPhone six and can easily fit in your pocket because it packs the power of the Linux operating system. The default is Debian, but you can install your own. Ocean can be used for a variety of functions, deploying web applications, frameworks such as Node.js, Ruby on Rails, building a custom router, an Internet of Things hub, iBeacon, Eddystone, or prototyping. The device can also act as a battery pack for iPhones and and Android devices and holds enough power to recharge an iPhone 6 1.3 times. It has the following specs, a 1 GHz ARM processor, uh, Cortex-A7, 1 GB of DDR3, 480 uh, megahertz RAM, 16 gigabytes of an internal micro SD storage, four gigabytes internal flash chip, one USB 2.0 and 3.0 port, 802.11b GN Wi-Fi and Bluetooth 4.0. It also supports uh, um, Qi wireless charging and a 4200 milliamp internal battery, which is good of two days of continuous CPU usage. And as the chat room is pointing out, it is kind of like, a Raspberry Pi. the 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 difference to me is, I really like ARM devices, and I think that it's it's a really competitive alternative platform to x86. But every time I talk to Raspberry or people, the ARM enthusiasts that are interested in um all ARM devices, a lot of them seem to rail against the Raspberry Pi, and they they say basically it's kind of like a toy. It's not really a serious device. So. I guess the thing that that makes it stand out in my mind is, it seems like from the ground up, it's designed to be a production grade uh, server, just a very very limited, very very uh, low power, uh, low power consumption, low resources uh, production. But it also
1: has kind of the the slick branding in the case, which I could see you know helping its marketability. Like you don't want to buy something with an exposed circuit board and put it together. Exactly. You just want to like drop it in your studio and use it for. You know, recording things when you're working with your friends or whatever.
0: Exactly. And, you know, as and from and again, if, taking that marketing perspective, one thing further, when I go into a client and I say, I, if I tell them I want to install something called a Raspberry Pi, they're going to look at me sideways. Right now, if I tell or expect them food, exactly now, if I now, if I tell them I want to install the ocean micro web server. You know, and then they go to a website and it has fla- flashy little spin around graphics and it has little bullet points that talk about specifications that they don't really understand. That kind of stuff impresses people. Um, but the, you know, I was, I was looking around the other day and I was thinking, you know, we have so many little tiny things. You know, we have a, we have a resource site that our employees go to, to, and it has um, links to the, to these incredibly long URLs. Like, for example, drivers for HP. You have to click like seven different links to get deep enough into their site before you can actually type in the model number that you want. It spits out the driver links. Once you find that link, it's not so bad. So we have that hot link to a resource site, and we have things like the another example would be the HP LIP driver. Um, all of that stuff is linked. It, it doesn't require a lot of power. I don't even necessarily need you know a uh, you know an uh, even uh, you know a big server would probably be too much and and too much overhead. All I really need is a little tiny thing that serves up a tiny little HTML page. And I was actually looking for inexpensive expensive uh low-powered servers and then you drop this on me and i'm like you know what this is it this is exactly what i was looking for a couple nights ago and um i can think of a ton of uses i don't know what if you had one of these west what would you be using it for
1: no i'm imagining like you could take it with you uh you know maybe you're maybe you're out car camping maybe you're out somewhere else and you want to play like a, a game with all your friends uh and you already have kind of like stuff set up you could use this as a as a little server that you know you host all the download files on, you could host shared files to drag and drop between them as you're working.
0: How about the mumble room? What do you guys have? Uh, what do you guys have ideas for? I know Fressel, you can probably think of uh, uh, of a thousand things to uh, to host on a tiny little web server. Hey, we could start hosting. Uh...
3: I, mean, I thought it would be nice to use it for like a wildlife camera or something or a surveillance system.
0: Yeah. Yeah, if so if if especially if we paired that with a like a like a GSM card, unlocked GSM card with a unlocked hotspot from Ting, you know, for 5 bucks a month or 6 bucks a month, you could have hotspot capability and put that thing online and have it be a cellular server. they both run off a of battery, right? So that would be that would be kind of neat. How about uh how about uh Fresso, are you still here?
7: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah.
0: You got any ideas of what you could do with a tiny little pocket (laughs) cloud website? I
7: have tons of ideas. Uh, Actually, I could probably use one today to collect some data. Uh, But here's the thing. I am very destructive with this kind of devices. And this is why I love the Raspberry Pi is because I can destroy one and getting a new one costs me just five bucks, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I literally just a couple hours ago accidentally shot a Raspberry Pi with a twin, too. I'm not even joking. Accidentally, you say. Um, I think it's still working. It still sent the data back to uh, my tablet, so um, I think it's still alive. Um But I can do this because a replacement cost me five bucks. I'm not too worried about it. That being said, um, uh, if I had... Uh, a $50 server, I, I would probably not be as willing to experiment with it, <laughs> uh, which is the big downside for me. Um, that being said, if you play with uh, a lot of IoT uh, stuff and you need a hub, this is perfect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. Um, I can think of a t- so-
4: so, good. My my first thought was I, I saw that also on the internet. My first thought was I could use a Nokia N9 for that. He's doing the same thing. Besides, I have no USB port, but the rest I have it.
0: Okay. Well,
4: I, I don't. It's a rather expensive tool when I when you look at the prices. So you can have much cheaper thing to do the same thing. I think.
6: <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think price
4: is the
3: only factor. I mean, there are plenty of people who, you know, look at how many people buy Apple Macs, right? Right. So mm-hmm. the price is not the single factor. Uh, it, You know, as a geek on a limited budget, yeah, sure, it may be uh, of your price range or your budget for whatever, like um, homebrew project. But if you're a professional and you want to take along a server to a demo – um, you know, to a to a company that won't let you plug your laptop into their network, I've had plenty of those occasions. That's a great use case. If, you know, want to demo something? You can just put, slap the little server down on the middle of the table, turn it on, and say, "Right, connect your laptops to that," and uh, and you can, you know, I'm, I'll show you my my web application demo written in Node or whatever running off that little box.
1: And that's it, a great. You know, that's a great point. Because so many things run on Windows these days that you might not, you know, it might be way more work to try to get your demo running on a Windows laptop that your business provides you than it would be just to stick it on a little Linux box. You don't need, you know, load balancing. You just need an Nginx server.
3: Right. And for me, like right now, I'm sat in a hotel away from home. uh, It would be ideal for me to have a little server with me here as well sometimes. There's some things that I want to run uh, on a server rather than having to use the rubbish hotel Wi-Fi to deploy out to the cloud. I could just deploy it on a little local server sat here. And having it as a, a little box that has a battery in it is just nicer you know, it's it's not it's not as gnarly as having a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, okay, I could get a Raspberry Pi in a nice case. But I'd also need a battery and Bluetooth and a wireless dongle. And, you know, adding all those things together get you it. Know, sometimes a pretty box outweighs yeah, uh, you know, hackability of putting a bunch of components
1: together, and if they support it well, that might be enough. You know that you know that. Well, if this thing breaks, I can reasonably get it replaced or serviced, or you know, rather than oh, well, it's on me to buy the new hard drive and figure out why the solder joints aren't working and
0: you know there are there are other you know out of the box solutions that i use too you know one of examples is every place that we do work in we usually try to keep at least one box that we can ssh into so that we can get into the network to do various things and then from there we can do you know we can you know do a scan or ping a specific ip or whatever but we like to have at least one box sitting on the inside now normally that's not a problem because if they're paying us to come do the network infrastructure usually they have at least one uh, at least one, at least one server. I'll say that. I, that. That's not true in every place, especially in the hospitality industry, because a lot of that's cloud based. But most of the, the the enterprise networks we have one server. But this would be a great place to actually put, you know, like a single device behind the firewall. By the way, I've <laughs> been updated from the field that the name of the of the new rig is not Rover, not Rover two. It is. Lady Jupiter.
7: Whoa.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Lady Jupiter. That's the name of that beautiful, beautiful RV. So uh, there you go. Um, so yeah. So I have had servers on my brain, servers on my mind all week this week uh, and all week last week. And I, I actually just got done <coughs> setting up a, a couple of the in-house stuff here for Speed, And one of the things I was doing was I, I, it was uh, last week or the week before. I was working uh with a client who wanted to set up content hosting and basically what they were they wanted to do is they had three different uh three different things that they wanted to run three different independent servers that they wanted to run and so we were talking about you know we could buy a server and virtualize all three of those little mini servers um and the the the, the price point was going to be $3000 to buy that server and then we started talking about it well here's you have to consider a couple of things one is you're going to purchase that server and and you're going to, you know, have to have to front that first three thousand dollars and then you're going to have to They were going to be on a two year upgrade cycle. So every two years they're going to spend another three thousand dollars and throw the last one away. So basically that means they're paying, you know, one and a half thousand dollars a year to maintain this to maintain this architecture uh Then there's no redundancy So if they have to do upgrades If they have to do If we have to do repairs They're going to have to take that server offline For a couple of hours Unless, of course, we could buy a backup server But then you're spending another $3,000 on the backup server So now we're up to $3,000 a year and repairs and maintenance aren't going to be covered, so they're going to contract that out to us. Now, the good news for me is we charge $200 a month per server to do that, so I would have been happy. No yeah, I would have been thrilled if they would have decided to, uh, uh, to buy the server and then pay us a monthly fee to maintain it. Um, but, in, so, but anyway, we broke all that cost down, divided it by you know their monthly costs and said, this is what it's going to cost you per month to run a server. And then we looked at what it costs to run that same – to do all the same things they wanted to do on DigitalOcean. And actually, one other thing I forgot there there was also pricing in there for a backup internet connection because if the if the if the fiber line that fed the building ever went down, then they would have a backup connection. that was going to be another fifty bucks a month, I think. Um, and so we looked at the cost of the Digital Ocean droplet four hundred and eighty dollars a year. That's what it was going to cost them for everything all included. They were going to have practically no downtime they were no longer going to be responsible for the upgrades. There was going to be no ongoing maintenance because it's going to be handled by a professional that lives and sleeps in the data center 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they eat and breathe this stuff. That's and the be- gremlins, right? Little yeah. data center gremlins? Yeah, well, they, they're minions, actually. You know the little the yellow oh, minions? minions. Yeah. Oh, so that bas- makes more sense. Basically, after they got done working for, uh, uh, for, the, for the evil henchmen in uh, Despicable Me 2, then they actually went to work for DigitalOcean. They're the ones that actually maintain the servers and the server infrastructure. They, they do it all day long and they do a fantastic job. Now, because of the complicated setup that we had, it was going to cost us about, you know, roughly $40 a month or so to, to do all that. But if you're just running a basic web server, kind of like some of the tasks we were talking about on this uh, on this ocean uh, server, if you're just running, a, you know, a basic web server or a basic database server, man, we switched our entire ticketing system over to a uh, to a five dollar a month droplet on DigitalOcean, and it, it, I mean, it freaking flies, like it is. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's far and away better than the system that we, we were using before. And it runs on a cheaper droplet. And we're, we're accomplishing all that for five bucks a month. And here's the best part, Wes. DigitalOcean is going to give you $10 credit if you use the promo code DO unplugged. So you're, $10. 10 bucks, And so basically you get the first two months free. And because, uh, you, there's no requirement to, to keep going. If you decide after the first two months you don't want to use it anymore, you just power the server down and close your account. And, and that's the end of it. But you won't do that because, it's an addiction. I it my
5: really name is. it is.
0: My name is Noah, and I'm an addict. I'm addicted to digital ocean droplets. I spin them up constantly. I spin them. Up. I was playing with. Have you ever Have you ever played with the? Um, I'm probably throwing away a, a Linux action show idea. But have you ever played with Pong? No, I, I
1: think, have I, not. think it's,
0: I think the name is Pong. Let me let me look. But basically, it is a it is a load balancer uh, for Linux. And, uh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and everyone is probably, uh, everyone that knows it is probably thinking of it. I'm trying to well, look it. Well, you're
1: really taking over for Chris last then.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Not, not quite that. But here we go. Here we go. It is, it is called, I'm pulling the name up now. It is called, I, it doesn't have the name, but the, but anyway, there is a, there is a program. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll throw it in the show notes. And basically, it is a very, very simple load balancer. So you set it up on one DigitalOcean droplet and, basically what happens is anytime your pound that's the name of it, pound p-o-u-n-d oh, pound is great yeah and so basically you set it up you have three servers and you have your your server and your backup server and then you have your load balance balancing server that has pound running and basically what happens is anytime that uh, server one goes down it automatically sends all of the traffic to server two but it gets even better let's say you had a uh, let's say you had one server that had a lot of really good resources, and then you had your other server from a couple of years ago that didn't have so many good resources. You can actually set uh, set it up so that you have a a weighted key. So out of every 10 users that connect, six of them will go to the good hardware and four of them will go to the poor hardware. Um, and, and you can set it up like that to, to, to distribute the load over, you know, obviously I'm using the example I'm using too, but you could have three or four or five. And we actually set that up on our ticketing system so that if our main ticketing computer ever goes down, it automatically fails back to a backover DigitalOcean droplet. And God forbid anything ever happened to DigitalOcean themselves, it automatically fails back to an on-site backup on our premise. And God forbid anything happens to both those two at the same time, it'll fail back to to a backup of a backup server that sits in my house. Uh, nice. Yeah. So this actually, I, like you said, I probably just blew a perfectly good Linux action show episode talking about that right now. But it wow. is super, super cool. And, and here's, the, here's my challenge. If somebody goes and tries this, they can put this to the test. You can set pound up in 30 seconds. It's that fast. I mean, the configuration file is like 12 lines. And, and, and you have it up and running and it works. And it's absolutely amazing. Uh, so if you want something useful to use that $10 DigitalOcean credit for, that's, that's what I would look at. Um, I want to go over to this article uh, that comes to us from RS Technica, and this is about um, having confidence in Linux to do the things that we have sourced to basically other devices. And the article says, I've noticed lately that rather than replacing a router, every time it literally stops working, I've needed to act earlier swapping new gear because an old router could no longer keep up with the increasing internet speeds available in the area. Um and he says, I, uh, a lot of you are probably muttering to yourself, PF sense. Sure. That might be what you're thinking about or Smoothwall, or untangled. I've played with all of the firewall distros out there, but I decided to go with a more basic, more old school approach, a plain CLI only install of Ubuntu server that has a few IP tables rules. And he talks about basically how he set his Linux box up to act as a firewall slash router. And before I go on uh, with what I think about this, what do you think, Wes? I
1: thought I thought this was a great article. Um, it may not be applicable for everyone. Not everyone wants to learn and write their own r- IP tables rule set. But I mean, there are things like you know UFW uh, and and other firewall firewall D things that'll help you set your firewall rules. But it's a great example of how you you know if you want a good project, you want something to just kind of deep dive on understand networking and routing a little bit better. Here's a really helpful guide. I love the graphs he has here, just kind of outlaying what performance he got. A big one for me is a lot of people want to set up VPNs on their router, but a lot of those little crappy, not even smartphone-quality ARM chips in the routers are not going to be able to do the kind of crypto that you want, but something x86-based probably has a nice instruction set for it. Exactly.
0: Now, anyone in the Mumber Room use uh, use any sort of uh, Linux firewall distro? Any distro at all does firewalls?
6: Or routing. Does open OpenWRT count?
0: Sure, let's talk about it. Um, what is it that drew you to OpenWRT?
6: Well, frankly, I was just too scared to leave the stock firmware on there. TP-Link, but, you know, I mean, it's not <laughs> the link or anything, but still. So, so it, I, I bought the router with the specific intention of throwing an open-source software on there. also happened to be about the same time that... Uh, BSD was thrown on a TP Link by Alan.
0: <laughs>
6: there you go. Um, the model down.
0: So what I ha- what I have th- my my basic problem with all of the different firewall distros out there, and I've admitted numerous times that I am incredibly happy with RouterOS, and it's a it's a it's an operating system that is sold uh, by Microtech and put onto Microtech devices, and I am able to get an enterprise grade uh, security gateway firewall router for like. $40 and they work amazing. We have them in production. We have uh, the most I've had that I've seen personally is 2000 users connected at one time and it didn't miss a beat. And the, the, nice. the yeah, I mean, it's, it's in an amazing, I mean, uh, to be fair, that wasn't the $40 one. That was a, a couple right. hundred dollars, but, but the operating system is the same on all of them. It's just that, the, that you get a better processor and a little bit more memory and, and, um, and it becomes rack mountable and stuff like that. Um, and you get more uh, interface ports too. But my basic concern with all of these things is that Linux has been capable for a long, long time at doing a lot of this stuff. And we, for whatever reason, don't have confidence in its ability to do something as simple as IP uh, routing. And there is a company out there called Cumulus Networks. And they basically what they do is they believe that Linux is good enough as a router. So it's, it's basically exactly what these guys have done. Or what this guy is talking about is using Linux to do your routing and, and, and firewall stuff. The the problem that they ran into though and where their solution is, that the switching fiber inside of a lot of the a lot of the network cards that you put in to a computer isn't fast enough when you handle very, very large networks. If you have a lot of traffic going through the, the, the integrated network card or even a PCI network card isn't going to be fast enough. And so they have, um, you, you know, and I, this is well over my head. I admit that, but my understanding is that they have, um, they have special uh, switching fiber that is on the same level that you would get if you went with something like a Juniper Networks or a Cisco, um, or a Microtech or, or HP or what have you, um, to do your routing. And, but they, both the author of this article and Cumulus Network share a belief that I have subscribed to now since it's been explained to me. And that is that, Linux is often more than enough to do a lot of the tasks that we want it to do. We just don't trust it because it doesn't have a pretty web UI. And, you know, you know, the, we just talked about in the mumble room about how we don't trust stock firmware on a TP link, which is smart, by the way, um, because they're kind of a lower end uh, device. But what and so basically what he did was he took. Better open source firmware and put it on, you know, reasonable hardware and got a very usable experience on it. And my question is, what if we could do that with everything? But instead of using something like OpenWRT that only runs on a specific set of devices, what if we just used an actual operating system? Which I think is kind of what this are, what the author is talking about. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it has a great, you know, the one one thing I like that would work with Sense or other things as well is the is the split between your core routing and firewall and your wireless AP. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's, I think that's very helpful. I think that makes, you can probably upgrade, you know, your wireless AP a couple times, while you still have the same server set up to do your routing. Yeah. Uh, it also lets you host more OpenWRT works for this too. One thing I do like about OpenWRT is that it has a built in package manager.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So
1: I use it at home for instance, and, uh, I wanted to have two, I, my work still uses PPTP as a VPN, even though it's broken, even mm-hmm. though it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to be able to have two separate connections to work from two separate devices. Uh, by default, a lot of routers will not be able to NAT that correctly. Sure. OpenWT you just install one package and bam it works perfectly. Really? So you get that same kind of power but you can do that. It's just an IP tables module and if you had, a, you know, it's like Ubuntu it's even easier. It's just like a mod probe away, right? So I think that's what you get is like if you want to customize and you really want the power to tune things and understand what's happening then then why not?
0: How about the Mumba Room? Anyone in support or against of using Linux as a router or edge device?
7: I think it makes the device, um, much more flexible and if you have, um, some spare resources on it, um, that you could use otherwise, it, you can, uh, plus, um, I think tools like PFSense or other, uh, Routing specific this shows they come with all this stuff that you could possibly need for the most complex router you will ever build in your, ri- in your life, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you just use the Ubuntu server and all you need is um, uh, IP tables, you have this super simple uh, setup for your super simple task, which makes it a lot easier to manage.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I. I I I guess I have become. I guess I started in the networking world in Cisco, where nothing is easy to manage because everything is. And, and you know the thing is about Cisco is it's great hardware. It does a great job once you learn how to configure it. But the configuration syntax is not similar to anything else because they have their own commands and it's its own syntax and it doesn't work on anything else. And so if you start configuring routers that way, I guess everything seems like a step up from that at least from a usability standpoint. But um, you know one of the things that we do I should ask it first anyone else have any other thoughts about about routers
4: Linux Well if Linux. you take if you take the Fritz boxes for example they are running Linux or the Asus routers they are running Linux and for the Asus routers they are open source enhancements available Really Tell
0: me more about that yeah. I've seen Asus routers at like Best Buy I didn't know that they were running anything open source though
4: So I can't tell you what model I have, but I switched. I took uh, an open source replacement of the stock firmware, which is open source too. And there are some enhancements with it.
0: That's awesome. You know, one of the things that I found is if we let employees take routers home, they, they do better with them in the field. So, for example, we had a program what I shouldn't say had, we have a program called professional development. And basically if there's equipment in the shop, that's not actively being used or isn't actively assigned to a ticket to go out and to be deployed, they can take that equipment home as long as it's returned in the same condition it went out with and play with it. And it was actually the company I worked for before had a similar program. And it really, really helped me um, because I wasn't going to be able to uh, put my hands on a, on a, on a $10,000 uh, core router or core switch. But Unless the company bought it for for a client and then I was able to play with it for a little bit. And so we have let employees do that and take their equipment home. And basically what we're doing is I can teach somebody how to set up IP tables on a router and I can give them written instructions so they can go through and do it but the the biggest thing that they lack is confidence in the field if they walk out into the field and they go to a client and the client says I need you to forward uh, I need you to create this firewall rule that accepts packets from this or I need you to create this NAT rule that sends packets uh, to this internal IP and they can think to themselves and go oh, I've done that a thousand times at home when I was forwarding my web server or playing with my SSH and even though that stuff is meaningless <clears throat> in the grand scheme of of what we make money off of it's valuable because they're developing skills. And so I found that to be a really cost effective way to boost their confidence when they're in the field. So they not only do they know what they're doing, but they feel like they know what they're doing um, and they know that they know what they're doing. And that's really helpful. And, I was talking to an employee yesterday and he was talking about how he had some lack of confidence when it came to administrating servers. And so what we ended up doing with him is we signed him up on a website called Linux Academy uh, slash unplugged. And we were able to get the course because we used LinuxAcademy.com dot com slash unplugged. We got the course for a third of the cost. And what we ended up, it ended up costing us like 15 bucks. And we sent him through doing the uh, the Red Hat uh, seven so he could learn how to do a lot of the Red Hat administration. <clears throat> and he came back to me uh, a couple days ago. And said, you know, I, uh, I, I, well, he he came to me yesterday is when when he finished and and said to me, you know, the you know we signed up for that course and I, I sat up last night and I was kind of goofing around with it and playing with it. It was awesome and I, I, I now. You know, I kind of had an idea of, of how to do this, that, or the other, but now I have been told by an instructor, an instructor, by somebody of authority that this is the appropriate and acceptable way to do this. And so you don't, you're not embarrassed about, is this the right way to do this? Or is this just kind of the way I've always done it? And so, you know, I can get the job done, but is it technically correct? You know that what you're doing is correct. And, 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 um, and so for him, he actually signed up for his own subscription. He told me today that he has his own subscription to, to Linux Academy. And he's going to continue on, uh, to learn other things because he sees it like, like a subscription to Netflix. It's like entertainment. And I'll tell you something about knowledge. Knowledge is the one thing that people can't take away from you. It doesn't matter what, doesn't matter what life throws at you. You can get arrested. You can be, uh, you know, everything short of being killed. You can lose a lot of stuff in life, but nobody can ever, ever, ever take away things that you've learned. They can't take away your education. They can't take away your knowledge. <clears throat> so for 20 bucks a month, um, and actually even less have used Linux dot com slash unplugged. You can get a course and you can learn things that nobody will ever be able to take away from you. And to me, that just seems like an incredibly valuable way. And in, it's it's a huge return on investment. And not only that. <laughs> I've learned one of my favorite things to do is I memorize useless trivia facts like I memorize things I'll that are
1: to you now I, I
0: do and it's really dumb it's so stupid but it's fun because it's fun to do in a crowd when you sit down in front of a bunch of people and you you quote some esoteric uh, 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 fact and 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 then you act as if like everyone should know it or you say it in a way that everyone should know it and then everyone looks at like man that guy's really smart he's that guy's did, how how did he know oh, that? Oh, I see. How, how did he know that? Yeah, yeah. If you're ever around me in person, then and you see me do that, you can like don't say anything. Don't you dare ruin it, Wes. But you can I know would never. Okay, but you can know for yourself. Like that is that that's Noah doing his thing. That's him uh, uh, doing that trivia thing where he does that thing where he pretends that everyone should know it, but really he knows that nobody else knows it and he knows it. I think it's a fun game. Great way to get that trivia is LinuxAcademy.com/slash/unplugged. If you want to support Jupiter Broadcasting. Uh, we could really really use your support you know chris i don't i, I don't even know i can't even put into words that from the time the man wakes up in the morning till the time he goes to bed it, even if he's doing other things in the back of his mind he is thinking about shows about content about what his audience wants and no how to, and how to, yeah you you so you've been around him so you understand and what and and how to best deliver that and the problem that he keeps coming up against is to do more things to do things better requires capital and the problem is we find all of these little excuses of why we don't want to uh, of of why we can't or why we shouldn't support this that or the other and and that's what i hear from people um you know for the for the, from the people they're saying well i'm not contributing because xyz and i just i want to ask people to look at it like you'd look at any other source of entertainment you don't maybe don't agree with everything that's ever said on netflix or maybe you don't agree with everything that's ever said on uh, hulu but you still contribute to those services because they're providing valuable content to you and again we going back to that whole knowledge is power thing if man if if i if i charged the if i if i build out the amount of time the amount of information that i give that we give on on Linux Action Show and this week on Linux Unplugged. And if Chris did the same thing and and build that out as a consultation service rather than just putting it on the internet for free. Yeah, we'd be rolling rolling in cash. So you should
1: consider that. Maybe. Yeah, I
0: should. Maybe I've maybe we've attacked this whole thing the wrong way. Maybe that's what we should do. We should just start Going doing right online to the paywall. Yeah, online consultation. You pay you call in, we take your credit card number and then we'll walk you through all this stuff and I'll start doing how-tos and he, and Chris can uh, Chris can fix your archbox cuz I want nothing to do with that. And yeah, we'd make tons of money, but no, and we give all that to you, to you for free. And and right now, we could use your help at 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 um, at patreon.com/today and every person that signs up, even if it's just a couple bucks, If the more people that sign up, every dollar you put towards patreon.com slash uh, slash today is a dollar that says, I listen to Jupiter Broadcasting. I find the content that you guys make valuable and I appreciate what you're doing. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. Um, you know, you can, you can divide that up with, you know, a lot of people if they, if, if, if a bunch of people just contributed a dollar. It would, it would add up to a ton. So that's my plea. If there's anyone out there that, that, especially now that we're getting into like tax return time, if we can, I don't know if it's possible to do a one time donation on, on patreon.com slash today, but you can do that on the Jupiter broadcasting site. But we would really, really appreciate your support because honestly, when things like scale come up, it's the first the first wave is excitement of this is going to be amazing we're going to do this and it's going to be exciting and then it's immediately followed with a wave of panic of how in the world are we going to pull this off um and that would help alleviate that so i want to talk about um gnome defining a clear set of core apps for the desktop and you see this article wes yes i did so of course you did because you posted it (laughs) (laughs) but um and so basically um they are talking about how cheese is now a core app and g edit is going to be coming soon as a core app and i think to some degree this goes back to what we were talking about about um having a, a cohesive desktop experience right and i'm interested in in, in what the future holds with that, because I think if we can start, even if we maintain our freedom, so, you know, anyone can write an app, anyone can install any app they want, but if we can get to a point where there are some apps that are just these are the these are the apps that are going to be installed. These are the apps that are going to work. These are the apps that we're going to understand that are going to be there and everyone else can understand that are going to be there when people write themes when people design uh, changes. So, for example, take my quick example that I used at the beginning of the show. If if Gwake became a core app for Gnome. um What we could do is say that the people that make the dock on the side would be aware of the fact that this terminal is going to drop down and how do we make that look nice with the terminal drop down? How do we make that a cohesive experience? And of course, we're not talking about stopping anyone else from adding apps in. We're just talking about having a defined set that these apps are going to be there. These apps are going to avail- be available. And one of the main reasons I use the VI text editor is because I can I can know without a shadow of a doubt it's going to be available on every machine I ever it's use. It's everywhere. It is. It's everywhere. And, and it and becomes omnipresent like that, then you end up using it. Uh, what are your thoughts, Wes? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I
1: think, I think GNOME is rapidly becoming one of those desktops, you know, Un- Unity as well, but where we can just put people in front of them and they look polished, they look like a 21st century desktop, and one thing that people come to expect from the other operating systems is a kind of consistency, internal consistency, and, uh, you know, between when you sit down at one computer and you sit down at the next computer, you know you'll be able to do a certain amount of things. They look this way. It's the same kind of interaction. So hopefully this goes, at least some extent, to making GNOME that kind of environment where you're like, oh, yeah, well, cheese is here, Gedit will be there, things where you're just like, okay, it works, it's all GNOME, and if you, for the power users, of course you can still install whatever replacement app you want. It's still Linux, but... Hopefully these will be nice and polished. I think like Elementary is doing a similar thing with their apps, right? So yeah. it's good to see them doing it
0: for sure. Mumble Room, what do you guys think? You guys are killing us today. You guys, I no.
4: I didn't even know that G Edit was not a core app. I mean, it's a, <laughs> I always had it.
0: Yeah, yeah. If the article is to be believed, that G Edit will be soon. And it's funny because I, <laughs> here's how you know G Edit is doing it right because. It is so entrenched in my mind as a native app to to uh, to GNOME. There's no, it, it is so much a core app in my head anyway that when I was doing the Linux Action Show a couple of weeks ago, I I inadvertently said was talking about how I didn't like uh, I didn't like the the text editor in KDE because you had to bring part of the the KDE desktop in, and I almost said. Well, and G Edit, it just and then it dawned on me the G and G Edit is obviously you know and then then my brain caught up with my mouth and and it's like but it, it is it is so well integrated and it does so well and the the thing is about something like G Edit is that it's such a simple program like what really is there to be done to make it a core app I mean do we all just have to agree that it's a core app I mean it, it <laughs> it's just not that complicated of an app you know
1: anyone else I am glad I am glad to see that the the color app uh, color manager will be there because yeah i think that like what we were talking about you know professional graphics earlier i think professional color management is something you need if you want to have linux as a production platform sure well sure. And,
2: and noah the uh, the point you were making earlier in the show uh, about the polish that unity shows on an ubuntu desktop or that cinnamon might show on uh, a mint desktop you know i i think Extending your core apps is a key part of how these desktop, em- desktop environments are going to show more polish. Yeah. You know, having a complete settings suite uh, for whether it's GNOME or Unity or KDE um, and having good default apps and good baked in apps is critical to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's going to become more cohesive, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think so. Anyone else before we wrap?
4: I think the GNOME apps, they are awesome. I very much agree. But I don't know
5: how about the speed of development. I think they're really slow in development.
0: All right. Anyone else?
4: Yeah.
2: Actually, I think this is where KDE of all desktops shines because they pretty much have a core app for anything that you want to do.
0: That is true. You you know, you're right about that. that if, 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 I'm not... <laughs> I, I haven't personally switched to KDE. I've never used it for any extensive amount of time. But you are onto something uh, when you say that they have a core app for almost everything. It does feel like they natively have thought of almost everything, doesn't it? It's a complete whole you know, experience. It is. It is. That's true. You're right about that. Um, and I, I, I don't know what it is. I think, I think basically it comes down to a long, 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 long time ago um, <laughs> when I was first getting into Linux. One of the guys that was teaching me about Linux was like... KDE is the desktop that you use if you're not a real power user. And GNOME Ooh. is the I know, I know. It's the it's a it's a huge trolley thing. It's hugely biased. But at the time, I was like 12 or 13 years old, and I'm like, well, I want to be the smart one, so I'll use GNOME. And I just I never really used anything after that. that. peer I, pressure. Look I, what happened. Yeah, I think it made a mark on me. Well, because I'd been using KDE prior to that as it kind of play with it because it looked more like Windows and it made me more comfortable. And um, I yeah. See. And then my desktop got you know got crapped on, and I was like, oh well, it's not a respected desktop, and I want to be a good hacker, so then I. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you know. stuck with me ever since alright anyone else before I wrap the episode
1: I just want to say you sounded like a very impressionable teenager Uh,
0: well I guess there was that but <laughs> not either here or there that'll put this episode of the Linux, uh, Linux Unplugged in the books before we get out of here let's thank a couple of our producers producer Rotten Corpse of course Blaster for running the mumble room for us We really appreciate having Wes. Thanks, Wes, for joining us. Thank you for being here, too. No, it's a pleasure to talk with you. It's always fun. We'll see you right back here next week, guys. And uh, hopefully, hair will be back. Suggest bang suggest, um. So and while we're doing that, I want to go as the out uh, as the um, the post show. I want to look at this uh, Phoenix OS. Um, how how deeply have you looked at this, Wes? Only briefly. Yeah. So basically, this goes back to talking about exactly what I don't like.
1: Android <laughs> on the yeah X86? yeah
0: exactly. Uh, but kind of proves me wrong. Actually, as I'm looking at this screenshot. You know what this looks like to me, Wes? It looks like. An Android operating system that is properly scaled to meet the requirements of a desktop platform. It doesn't look
1: that bad, actually. Although they do Oops. call it a ROM still, even for x86, which is a little weird, but uh,
0: it doesn't look bad. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, uh, no, it's it, it doesn't look bad. And it. you know what it really reminds me of is it reminds me of like a little bit of a souped up, better looking version of Windows. You know, you've got the two drives and they have space. And then you have the you know the navigation on the side, which I guess is to some degree what some of the uh, Linux file managers look like. But yeah, it's kind uh, of like Windows, GNOME mixed. I don't know. I got to tell you, West, this of all the things I want to install on my computer, this is darn near the bottom. Like I agree. Yeah, I just nothing about this is really. I don't know, a Mumble Room. If you guys are are thinking that any of these are, well, any,
2: and West said it. Uh, what concerns me about this about OSs like this is they're managed and developed like android roms unless like yeah. a true linux distro
0: mm-hmm.
2: i mean do you want to download just one big system image of random bits from the internet even if some of it's based on linux?
1: yeah this is a zip file uh and then you run a program that will create a usb for you i no. know
7: yeah. I actually don't mind that I, I I would be willing to trust the developer uh, on that I, I think would be, they would be shooting themselves in the foot if they would include anything malicious in there so uh, what I see as a bigger issue is that those uh, attempts to make uh, Android work on a desktop uh, kind of come and go and if I do install something I want uh, something that I can that I will know will stick around right uh because i don't feel like reinstalling something uh six months from now uh because what i initially installed doesn't have support anymore Hmm. i'm assuming it would just update apps separately um when it's not a system update as well
0: yeah yeah it looks like that looks like well it looks like it updates to the google play store doesn't it
2: well, nope. my thing is, is what Fretchell uh, said about uh, trusting the developers. I mean, you know, we trusted Lenovo not to put spyware on computers by default, and that happened.
0: Yeah, yeah, it did.
1: It's interesting to try to build up from Android to a complete desktop, rather than take a desktop and try to make it mobile. You
0: know, you know I, I think that that has a better chance of working. To be honest with you, I think you, I think it might be true, but. It's not. I, I it's not. Know. Neither is a good solution. But I think that scaling right. up is is, has a, is more viable than scaling down. Probably at least
1: for the majority of uh, mm-hmm. simple users. Not in a disrespectful way. Just people who don't. You know, like you need the web. You need your main apps, and that's it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I. I don't know. I nothing. Nothing about this is is uh, is. Uh, There's been a, me a as ton amazing. of
3: attempts to strip uh, Linux down to like something small and lightweight. There was one, Peppermint, I think, was one. Right, yeah. It was mostly browser-based um, and didn't really have you know, concept of an app store as, like, like Android has it. Uh, because you still need native apps. Like No matter how hard Firefox, uh, the Mozilla guys tried to push Firefox as HTML5 and that's all you ever need. Right now, that's not the case. You know, If I want to play some high-end 3D game, then you need something lower level than HTML5. You know, it's just not ready for that yet,
1: right? Um,
3: but but I I can see some value in in people pushing the boundaries with Android on the desktop. Um, I I don't know. I, I I'm I'm with Fretzel. So I don't. I think it needs to be someone bigger and someone more committed to do that though, because there will always be these little projects that pop up all over the place, and then they disappear a few months later or a year later, and you've got to wipe it and reinstall something else.
0: I don't. No, I mean I'm not exa- I'm not sure I'm following you. Are are like so Linux couldn't get much more stripped down. I mean, you have things like DSL that are like what, 50 megs? I mean, how much smaller do we really think we want an operating system
3: to get? Well, I personally don't care for that. You know, I'm not I'm not I, what I'm saying is that people have tried to make like, you know, very very small lightweight um distros uh-huh. that the users then want to add loads of stuff to the
0: box it back right okay. yeah right 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 but it's but can we agree that it makes more sense to start with almost nothing and add all the junk that you want back on that is that is a that is a more viable option than starting than starting with something like you know Windows XP and saying I'm going to find a way to fit this on a phone and it's just there's just too there's just too much there to fit into a phone to get down to well, to shave off
3: Well, that's exactly what we're doing, you know, we're we're starting (laughs) with nothing and adding things like MIR and Unity 8 and specific applications. So yeah, I agree with you that it's better to start from nothing and and build up, uh, totally. Good.
7: Also, Noah, on that friend OS um, earlier, I think CM2 said in um, the IRC chat that it's in closed beta right now, so that's why no one was talking yeah, about it.
0: I, yeah, I, here's, here, I've learned, I've learned, uh, I've learned a couple of things today. Uh, I've learned that one uh, seven hours is still not enough time to uh, to properly prep a show. I've learned. <laughs> I've learned that everyone will telegram you at the worst possible time, right when you're in the middle of trying to do something, and so essentially you'll get nothing done for the about the hour leading up to the show because you'll be putting out random fires. Um, you sound more and more like Chris every day, <laughs> Noah.
7: Being Chris Lasovich, is that it?
0: Yeah, no, it's just it's it's funny. It's like, and the thing is, if I wasn't there, if I didn't see it myself, I would never ever believe right? how many like his phone will be silent almost perfectly for like an hour and then right before he goes on air or he'll sit down to do something and the second his his butt hits the seat Boom! Somebody starts telegramming. Boom! The IRC goes off. Boom! His phone starts ringing. Boom! The alarm, the, the smoke alarm goes off. Boom! The oven blows up. Boom! His truck blows up. Like everything happens at the worst possible time. And if I hadn't seen it myself, and it's and it's it is, it is like clockwork. I could set my watch. I would. I'll know when a show is going to start because everything in the studio will start going wrong. But it'll only go wrong right when he sits down. After he's done with the show, then everything returns to silent and normal. And it's it's Naturally. funny. Because, yeah, and it's funny because like for the most part, I managed to skirt that except. It must just be a JB thing.